0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, glad to have you with us on this Tuesday, April 13th. We're going to talk today about a subject that has been much in the news in Washington around the country, which is the filibuster tool used in the United States Senate uh, that has gained a lot of attention because of the possibility that Republicans are able to use it right now to block uh, some of what Joe Biden is hoping to accomplish as president. And we've got just a phenomenal panel to talk about this subject. Um, So I want to start by giving you a personal story. I I think that my first encounter with the filibuster was not in a government class or a civics class. I think the first time I learned about the filibuster was when I was probably 10 or 11 years old, sitting up late one night, watching the great Frank Capper picture, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Smith playing Jefferson Smith, a young, naive senator, freshman elected um, by accident to come to Washington, is trying to protect land for a boys' camp that means so much to him. And he is thwarted time and again by powerful interests that want that land for development. So Jefferson Smith, Jimmy Stewart, decides to lead a filibuster to try to take the time needed to get out word to the people of his state why what he wants to do is so important and in the climactic scene jimmy stewart finally after what 24 25 hours without stopping finally gives in we'll listen to just a little of that right now
2: you all think i'm liked well i'm not liked and i'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause even if this room gets filled with flies like these and the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place, somebody will listen to me.
1: And he collapses on the floor of the Senate. Well, the filibuster has been not, uh, hasn't been used, I don't think, for such idealistic purposes over the years since then, and right now it is especially contentious. So we're going to talk about its history And about where we're headed with the filibuster today. It's Tuesday, which means uh, I'm joined by my Tuesday partner from the Atlanta journal Constitution, senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, we should, of course, point out that you covered the United States Congress uh, for a long time in Washington before moving to Atlanta. So you're well aware of the traditions and the rules of the U.S. Senate.
0: Absolutely. And I think the first time I became aware of the filibuster was also watching that very same movie. And (laughs) when I first arrived on Capitol Hill um, in the early years of when Obama was president, seeing the way it was used in such a different way, um, it's so often now it is not that talking filibuster um, that became so famous. It's often a, a very quiet kind of behind the scenes thing. And you might not even realize it's happening sometimes. So I can't wait to dive in today.
1: I agree. I'm really thrilled that we're joined uh, also for our conversation by former United States Senator Saxby Chambliss, uh, who served two terms in the U.S. Senate after four terms in the U.S. House. Um, Senator, thank you so much for being here. And a very quick note, uh, because this hasn't been private, it's been covered by the media. Um, You've now completely recovered from a very small stroke that you had, uh, I think, last month. And we're so happy that you're back to full health and uh, with us today. Thank you very much, Senator.
3: Well, thank you, Bill, and I uh, appreciate uh, your comment relative to uh, my medical issues. And, uh, boy, thanks for all the prayers and the thoughts of your listeners that I uh, I received. That uh, Let me tell you, I am living proof that prayers work. So uh, okay. look back. I uh, went back in the game and uh, looking forward to getting uh, a visit with you this morning. Uh, you,
1: were, you were in the U.S. Senate at an important moment uh, when Harry Reid, uh, through a procedural motion, that was able to change one aspect, one rule in the Senate. We're going to talk about that as we move forward, uh, but uh, his change uh, says something about the unintended consequences that can come out of tampering with uh, traditions like the filibuster. We'll get to that a little later in the show. Oh, back with us again. Uh, professor of American History, Chairman of the History Department at Emory University, and the Jimmy Carter Professor of History, Joe Crispino. Joe, how have you been?
2: Uh, been good, Bill. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, that, that clip you played of Jimmy Stewart, it just, uh, I'm going to have to write a lecture about that. You know, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, that movie came out in 1939, same year as Gone mm-hmm. with the Wind. And that line just that you played, you know, we talked about the fight for this lost cause. It's interesting uh, how those two films kind of can be paired together to think about a kind of the, the broad popular romance about the South that existed in the 1930s and 40s. And, and I think if you think about how the filibuster was used in that period to frustrate efforts to pass civil rights legislation, it, it, it's, it's an interesting context in which to think about that film.
1: I do want to be careful uh, before I introduce our final uh, panelist to point out that um, that uh, Jefferson Smith, the Jimmy Stewart character, came from a Western state and was using lost cause in a very different context than it's used in Gone with the Wind, but uh, it is an interesting thought, Joe. We are joined today for the first time by Stephen Dennis, a Washington correspondent for Bloomberg News, uh, covers the U.S. Senate's covered Congress, the White House. You've been with Bloomberg, I' uh, you said, Stephen, for, since about 2015, and before that with uh, CQ, with Congressional Quarterly, Roll Call. You have a long history of covering Washington, yes?
4: Yeah, so about 15, 16 years now. And, uh, you know, every, every year it seems to get a little bit more partisan and a little bit, uh, you know, the, the, the two parties, Don't talk to each other all that much anymore. I mean, when I got there in 2005, there was still at least, uh, on a lot of big things, including the filibuster, some bipartisan groups that would get together, like the Gang of 14 that put off the nuclear option. Um, And uh, you had folks like John McCain going over and talking to the Democrats and trying to prevent these big blow-ups. And, uh, you know, so I've sort of seen it go from that where Republicans almost went nuclear in 2005 and 2006, two years later when the Democrats did. And and now, you know, you you have uh, sort of a new situation where most Senate Democrats right now, I think, would vote to get rid of the filibuster entirely.
1: Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to get into that. But I want to point out, Steve, that you have, we have with us today a wonderful example of someone who worked, tried to work across the aisle uh, in Senator Chambliss um, uh, as part of the Gang of Eight, among other things. Senator, working hard on trying to find a way to pass an actual immigration reform uh, bill. So you're no stranger to working across the aisle during your two terms, Senator.
3: Yeah. And uh, that's very, very honestly, one of the great things about the filibuster, because it makes Republicans and Democrats uh, sit down and negotiate. Uh, And what I found during my 20 years of public service that when one side or the other is uh, solely responsible for passing of whatever matter um, the, the the bill is not would uh, it would have been better if there had been negotiations and bipartisan passage uh, of a bill and um i know we're going to talk talk in the the, the weeds relative to the filibuster, but um, that is still, particularly on the legislative calendar now, requires Republicans and Democrats to sit around, uh, sit around and talk, just like Steve just uh, uh, referenced. And um, it, if it goes away, boy, it's going to be a... Um, uh, it's going to be a sad day for the institution of the Senate. So um,
1: that is one very strong perspective on this. But, tomorrow, let's go back a step and talk first about exactly the whole idea of the filibuster. First of all, Tamar, I want to make something that I think people are not certain about. In some ways, this is going to be a primer for a little while, at least, on what the filibuster is and isn't. <clears throat> there are those who believe the filibuster was, in fact, a device of the Founding Fathers that they inserted into the U.S. Constitution uh, out of a belief that you did need to have compromise, as Saxby Chambliss just said. That is not, in fact, the case at all. The filibuster is the product of rules established by the U.S. Senate uh, themselves, but it is certainly true to some extent, tomorrow that the filibuster was put in place for the reason Saxby talked about, um, pardon me, Senator Chambliss, and that is to find a way for both parties to work together, compromise, sort out legislation in you know this notion of the cooling saucer of the Senate.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, we didn't really see it on the books until the 1800s, and really the rules around it have changed here and there. Um, even going into the, the 20th century, um, you know, the, the leaders of the Senate have tinkered with what exactly a filibuster is. Um, and, and like we said at the top of the show, you no longer have to be on the floor doing like a, a talking filibuster like the very famous uh, Jimmy Stewart monologue. Um, what you can do now is you can literally pick up the phone, you can send an email um, to the clerk's office and say, you know, I have the votes to, to filibuster this. You know, we don't want this to go on the floor. And because now the Senate has rules where they can do Uh, multiple uh, streams of business at once, you might not even know as a member of the public that there is a filibuster Mm -hmm. happening.
1: Steve, let's again uh, try to lay this out in a very basic way. So the Senate requires 60 votes to pass a bill. We know that. And that really goes hand-in-hand with the notion of what the filibuster is capable of doing. Uh, The the Senate also allows for unlimited time to debate. Uh, Debate can be stopped by Closure, right? And closure, too, requires a 60 vote mandate to be able to stop debate and go to a vote. Have I got all that correct so far, Steve?
4: Yeah, so cloture was something invented about 100 years ago to stop, all, to sort of shortchange or to to stop debate. And originally they had a 67 vote threshold, then they have a 60 vote threshold. But you actually have to, on a uh, brand new piece of legislation, you don't need just one cloture vote. You actually have to have cloture on the motion to proceed to the bill. You can't even get to the bill these days without having 60 votes. Um, and then you debate the bill. Every amendment can be filibustered. So if you have, you have a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. But, you know, there's uh, a few senators who don't like it. They can filibuster. It doesn't have to be 41. Any Just one or two or three or four senators can actually force a, a, a very long delay. So what ends up happening, uh, at least these days, is very few bills come to the Senate floor for actual debate. A lot of what they do happens with unanimous consent, because it's just too difficult to go through the regular process. They, they try to do things with the unanimous consent, and they do have some debate on the floor, but usually on the big matters of the day, they get rolled into one or two big packages with very few amendments, very little actual what you and I would consider to be sort of high school debate, and then they vote. And so uh, it, it does take a while. It's not like you can just say, hey, I'm the majority leader. I want to close your vote in five minutes. You better be here. You actually have to have intervening days. Uh, There is a whole series of rules that make ending debate difficult, not just the 60-vote threshold.
1: Joe, one of the other things that allows the filibuster to be done, as as really Tamar points out, you can really have a very quiet filibuster now, almost a secret filibuster on a measure, and the thing that allowed that to happen was when the Senate passed a rule that allowed for parallel tracks of bills— You could be filibustering one bill very quietly, not bringing it to closure, just kind of quietly putting it aside, and yet proceed with the remainder of your business, which is why the filibuster can be used so
2: stealthily right now. That's right, Bill. It's great to hear Steve lay out that recent history. And what's interesting about this whole discussion is just how recent many of these changes have been. They've been since 1975, and they've become incredibly baroque in the way that, that these things have been used. But as what Tamar's already referenced twice is this uh, movement of foot now to, to return to a talking filibuster. And if you look at the kind of classic filibusters, the actual ones, not the fictional ones that you were referencing early, but the actual ones, you know, they required a tremendous amount of coordination. And, and there's a great argument about, you know, that small changes can make a difference. And there should be a high cost. For prolonging debate and for gumming up the work of the Senate, you know, if you look back at say a, a, a filibuster like 1960, 1960 there was a filibuster over civil rights legislation. Um, it, it greatly weakened the bill, but there was a bill that was passed, the rights bill in 1960. But it took a tremendous amount of time and coordination by senators on both sides of the issue. It involved a lot of elderly privileged men being inconvenienced and taxed physically, you know, staying up late and sleeping on cots in the halls of the Senate, you know, and it would be the same today, given the average age in the Senate, that the, in the Senate hasn't changed that much, you know, since the 1960s. So it would get rid of a lot of the kind of secretive, clandestine, you know, uh, maneuvers that Steve was, was talking about and make people stand up and be accountable for gumming up the work of the American people.
0: Yeah, just to, to piggyback off that, it's it's hard as a journalist or somebody tracking it as a member of the public to, to figure out sometimes who's gumming up the works. There's no political cost now. For filibustering legislation, and that's something that you hear a lot from people who wanna who wanna get rid of it. At the same time, we talk about how the Senate allows for dual tracks now, how you're able, even if there is filibustering, for them to get stuff done. They can confirm the president's nominees, for example. Um, a lot of people see that as a plus because it doesn't completely grind the chamber to a whole a halt. Because back in the day, you could debate something forever, and then the Senate is stuck on that one issue for days or weeks or months. So um, there is something to be said about the way things, you know, the way things are, are operating now and how it does allow the chamber to get something done, even if it's not on that, that central issue they're debating.
1: Senator Chambliss, I think it's interesting that you recall the days when uh, senators could work across the aisle. And again, you were a perfect example of that. And, and you still uh, uh, uphold the notion of the filibuster because you think it does force compromise. But you know, as well as anyone, that times have changed in Washington, D.C., and the poisonous, toxic partisanship in Congress uh, makes it more and more impossible for compromise, except, I mean, there are compromises, but not on the big measures, not on something uh, right now like the COVID relief package, like what we expect to see. We'll see what happens with the president's infrastructure bill, But you yourself, Senator, to bring up a slightly painful moment in your past when you worked on immigration reform across the aisle and then attended the state Republican convention, because you'd been working with Democrats on that measure, you got a fiercely negative reaction from many of those who had voted for you and supported you among the people in the Republican Party which strikes me as what was happening to our politics, the extreme partisanship that has taken hold even more today.
3: Yeah, and that's a great example, Bill, of uh, what's happened in the country. Uh, When you look back at the, um, the, I would refer as maybe uh, the calming uh, filibuster era, uh the 60s or beyond that um you, you know the, the, there was a lot of civility particularly among the the senate uh the uh, the framers of the constitution intended for the house to be hard charging and be partisan. but uh you reference the uh, washington and jefferson Con- uh, conversation about uh, the, the cup and the salsa and the <laughs> Senate being the sa- saucer to uh, uh, calm down what's happened over on the, on the House side, that's changed, um, and the country has changed. We now are pretty much uh, divided uh, from a population standpoint. We're a 50-50 <clears throat> country. And um, I, I think if we um, if we had one one body that uh, excuse me, if we had both bodies to where we only had the 51 uh, or 50 percent one um, in the case of the the House uh, plus the Senate, then uh, what you're going to have is not uh, um, uh, something kind of akin to what we're we're seeing today, what's happening with executive orders. Um, Trump uh, passed a lot of his uh, policy measures with executive co- uh, orders. Uh, Joe Biden had campaigned on the fact that we were going to reverse those executive orders and Um, In fact, of the 50 or so executive orders that he has executed, I think it's 22 were reversal policies of the Trump administration. So if you can just um, uh, have the change of the bodies um, and have the controlling uh, both bodies and the White House, you can reverse every um every policy every law that uh exists out there and i think that would be a a bad policy from a political standpoint um so, so it's can- um yeah. but that's what we're headed to toward if that uh if the filibuster role is uh, is totally exhausted
1: um so the filibuster being used in perhaps anti-democratic ways though um in the same way that executive orders perhaps reconciliation and we'll talk about all that but steve i want to talk i, I mentioned a, a little while ago that you know the, these law the law of unintended consequences can sometimes have a profound effect when you change uh, rules. We're going through that in Georgia right now with our election law. There are many people who feel there will be unintended consequences to what Republicans have done in the legislature. But let's go back to the filibuster in 2013. I think when Saxby Chambliss was still in the chamber, Harry Reid, yep. uh, essentially through a, a a tactic, a parliamentary tactic, was able to change the rules for the appointment of executive branch. Uh, 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 officers and federal judges, with the exception of the Supreme Court, uh, because there was frustration on the Democratic side that they weren't getting their appointments through. So Reed was able to push through a rule that changed it to a majority vote on uh, those offices I just mentioned, right, Steve?
4: Yeah, so the nickname for this uh, is sort of the nuclear option, where the Mm -hmm. chair... The the president of the Senate or whoever sitting in the chair rules based on the existing rules, and then you vote to overturn the ruling of the chair. And if you have 51 votes, that rule is toast. And uh, it's interesting because I've seen both sides of this debate. In 2005, when the Republicans were considering using this rule change or or enacting this rule change because the Democrats were blocking a lot of judges, they called it, uh, Bill Frist, who was the majority leader at the time, talked about this as the constitutional option. I remember Republicans giving speeches about and having press conferences about the Constitution does not require a supermajority. Uh, it requires a majority, and the Constitution says the House and Senate make up their own rules. And so the, the, uh, the shoe was then on the other foot in 2013, where Mitch McConnell and Republicans were not allowing confirmations to a number of judgeships, powerful judgeships, as well as certain agency heads, and the Democrats said "This this is intolerable. There was another gang, just like there was a gang of 14 in 2005, there was a gang that sort of had a little bit of a deal. And then that fell apart a month later, and uh, then the Democrats said, look, this is just not working. And, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell gave a very fiery speech about, you know, this was sort of the end of the Senate, and it was a disaster for the Republic, but when he was in charge in 2017, he had a big smile on his face and talked about how the Democrats, you know, he told the Democrats they'd live to rue, rue the day that they did that, and he took advantage of it. And and he used the same tactic to get rid of the filibuster rule for uh, the 60-vote rule for Supreme Court justices. And, and, and you know, now there's the 6-3 conservative uh, uh, Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, I, I am very skeptical that Mitch McConnell would not have gone nuclear- to confirm a Supreme Court justice in any case, whether or not 2013 had ever happened. Because I saw 2005 when a lot of Republicans were prepared to do that. Um, And we know how much Mitch McConnell cares about the courts. But he certainly was happy to blame it on Harry Reid and and take advantage of it. But, you know, even now, when there is no 60-vote threshold there are filibusters every day over executive branch mm-hmm. nominees it's just it's a 50 mm-hmm. vote threshold but you still have to run the clock you still have to go through all these procedures you still have to have a cloture vote so there are more cloture votes in the past 2 years with forced by democrats filibustering things trump wanted or appointees trump wanted i think than all the other congresses and and so this is something that's become a delaying tactic a A sort of a a power tactic to sort of force the other side to come and talk to you.
1: Um, I do need to get to the first break of the show. uh, But when we come back, Joe, I'd like to start with you uh, uh, going back in history a little bit. You've already talked about 1960. I think we should talk at least briefly about 1964 when Georgia U.S. Senator Richard Russell used the filibuster as a weapon. In one of the most consequential fights in American government. We'll do all that and a lot more when we return from our
0: break. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: We're talking about the filibuster today on Political Rewind with Bloomberg News, Washington reporter Steve Dennis, who's covered, uh, he's been all over Washington, the White House, Capitol Hill covering the House and the Senate. Uh, uh, Joe Crispino, professor of American history, chair of the department, uh, the Jimmy Carter professor of history at Emory, Emory former United States Senator Saxby Chambliss, and my Tuesday partner, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AGAC. Hey, the logo changed, tomorrow. I don't know, talk about a throwback to the past.
0: No kidding. Very old-school, kind of <laughs> old-timey text. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting to see. Um, all right. Joe Crispino, uh, in 1964, U.S. Senator Richard Russell uh, was not alone, but he led off a filibuster which was designed to stop President Johnson from passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This was a group of Southern senators, Strom Thurmond, Richard Russell, and others determined to stop it. And the filibuster lasted for 60 days, and LBJ could not move forward to get his legislation passed. It's an extraordinary episode in American history.
2: It is, but uh, one of the things I should point out is that— It's true that the filibuster almost killed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but that's kind of putting the the cart before the horse. It's like saying that the U.S. Olympic hockey team almost lost to the Russians in 1980. The point is they didn't lose to the Russians. They beat them. And what's important about 1964 is that it was the first time that civil rights forces in the Senate were able to successfully bring culture against a southern filibuster of a civil rights piece of legislation. And that had been, they tried to do that 11 times previously from when the cloture rule began, Rule 22 began in 1917. So it was the first time that they succeeded in that. Richard Russell actually was in the, spent a lot of that spring uh, in Walter Reed Hospital because he was very sick. And so the Southern forces were, were weakened in nineteen sixty four and it was actually this is when the dual track system began because it became the the strategy of Mike Mansfield, Senate majority leader and and uh, Hubert Humphrey, who managed the, the the legislation on the floor to draw it out and to let public opinion swing moderates moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats and be able to bring a culture vote, which, which they did they 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 got the successful vote. By four votes. And there were, you know, this is when there were prayer vigils on the Washington Mall in favor of civil rights. And it was an an enormously significant period in American history. But what's interesting about Richard Russell, if I could just say one more thing Richard Russell, you know, was the dean of the Southern Caucus, it was called. And he's the one who organized so many of those filibusters that were successful earlier in the 40s and the 50s. But what's interesting about one of the most well-known filibusters, and that's Strom Thurmond's filibuster in 1957. They were filibustering the 57 Civil Rights Act, which was the most significant piece of civil rights legislation that Congress passed since the Reconstruction period. And it was greatly diluted, but the Southerners did not filibuster. And, and, and Richard Russell organized them so they would not filibuster that bill. He wanted to give a victory to the majority leader his mentor, Lyndon Johnson, because he wanted to help position Lyndon Johnson to run for the presidency in 1960. So the senator the, – the southern senator just didn't filibuster in 1957. Strom Thurmond did a, mm-hmm. a one-man loan filibuster that really irritated and, and, and put his fellow southerners in a terrible position back home politically and got him into a lot of trouble. He was not a very popular – a person among his Southern colleagues in 1957 for doing that filibuster when he spoke for uh, 24 hours and 18 minutes and set the record for the longest filibuster.
1: All right. So, um, but Tamar, I I hear what Joe Crispino is saying. Nevertheless, the 64 filibuster certainly was a clear example of weaponizing the filibuster, not to reach a compromise, not to somehow find a way to have a bipartisan agreement, but rather to block legislation. And anyone who has not read Robert Caro's phenomenal three-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. If you're not going to read all of it, at least read the second one, Master of the Senate, which tells this story in incredibly exciting detail. But it was a, a weapon, tomorrow, and it continues to be as President Biden tries to get some of his agenda passed.
0: Yeah, and it forced all, all the folks who were in favor of the Civil Rights Act to really kind of hustle behind the scenes to cobble together a coalition um, which they were able to do at the end of the day. Hubert Humphrey, um, the, the the Senate Whip at the time, and then you had the Senate Minority Leader Everett Dirksen um, from from Illinois, and eventually they were able to cobble together seventy one votes, enough to overcome this filibuster. And of course, there's a very famous speech that that Dirksen made on the Dirksen made on the floor where he he talked about stronger than all the armies is an idea whose time has come, and certainly. Yeah. I think that the social forces in the country kind of helped push a lot of folks to get to yes by that point.
1: Uh, Joe, Joe, and I want to get Stephen. You know, I'm a
2: school teacher, so I'm going to have to correct the history. I'm going to get in the weeds with you, but you know, Cairo's talking about the '57 uh, filibuster, not the 64 one. Thank you. In fact, Robert Cairo hasn't even gotten to the '64 filibuster yet. He's still waiting. You know, he's still (laughs) writing. He's got books yet to write. But anyway, no. But the '64 Uh, legislation filibuster was very important. It showed it was not about compromise at all. It was the death throes of the of the of the Southern Caucus and their ability to 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 frustrate uh, civil rights forces in the Senate, no doubt.
1: Professor Professor Crispino, thank you, Master of the Senate. It's about the time when Lyndon Johnson was the majority leader in the Senate and trying to force through the '57 uh, bill. It's nevertheless an incredibly exciting uh, read. So, uh, Senator uh, Chambliss and and, uh, uh, Steve Dennis, I want to get you engaged in this. Let's talk very specifically about whether we think Democrats are, in fact, the president has now said he could support some form of change in the filibuster. Um, We know that Joe Manchin has been on the fence about this. To what extent, Steve, let me start with you. Do we think that the Democrats really now want to move forward with um, changing the, fi- the rules of the filibuster,
4: yeah, I think more than forty Democrats would vote today to do that. Um, probably close to forty-five, forty-six. There'd be there'd be a lot of Democrats who nece- don't necessarily want to take that step. Um, but you know, there's a very long list of Joe Biden's priorities that actually were. Barack Obama's priorities that did not become law in large part because of the 60-vote threshold. You know, the minimum wage hasn't gone up from 725. The last time the minimum wage was voted got an increase in the Senate was in 2007 after Nancy Pelosi attached it to the Iraq war funding bill. Uh, so it's been at 7:25 for over a decade. The gun background check issue was filibustered after Sandy Hook. I think there were 54 votes for it. Well, 54 is not 60. Union rights, immigration, the DREAM Act was filibustered in 2010. So the Democrats have a lot of pent-up ambition, and that's been thwarted. And there is no real expectation that a lot of these things are going to really move. Now, I think there's going to be some test votes. Chuck Schumer has promised to bring up gun background checks. That's going to be an interesting test for the Senate. Uh, Joe Manchin, who is sort of the leading defender of the filibuster among uh, Democrats, says he won't get rid of it or weaken it under any circumstance. Well, right now he's negotiating with Pat Toomey of of Pennsylvania and other Republicans to try to get uh, background check expansion legislation so that if you go and buy a gun, pretty much no matter who you buy it from, you have to get a background check. Right now there are ways around that. So... uh, It it will be very interesting to see what the Republican strategy is. If they start giving some victories and some compromises on some of these issues that have been intractable, where there's been no legislation for 20 or 30 years of any real consequence, that would be an interesting thing. Um, And so I think this is the real question here for this Senate. And, you know, right now they can do reconciliation. It's an extremely painful process. There are so many things you can't include in it. Things that would make sense if you're trying to implement something, you would need regulations to go with that. You need things that might make sense go up against this thing called the Bird Rule, named for former West Virginia Senator Robert Bird, who in, who wrote it in the '70s um, and the '80s. And, and and suddenly you can't do the minimum wage. Suddenly you you know you get you get to the floor, and suddenly your bill looks more like Swiss cheese than something that would actually make sense um, as as a new law. So I think this is something that is coming to a head this summer, whether or not there are going to be some bipartisan compromises. And I think think Joe Manchin is trying to force those bipartisan compromises together. And we're starting to see some talk on infrastructure, this big multi-trillion dollar package. I think Joe Biden realizes that he's only got a 50-50 majority 51-50 and he is at least reaching out to republicans and hoping he can come come up with a deal
1: senator um so Steve makes an interesting point. There is some some thinking that maybe Republicans mm, on on guns particularly could find a way to give ground. They could reach some kind of compromise on legislation to pass a bill that might tamp down some of the enthusiasm those 40-plus Democrats have for ending the filibuster. Um, But one way or the other, it seems to me that you are in the camp of those saying, look— it may be in Democrats' interest right now to do this uh, with their legislation, but watch out, Democrats, when Republicans are are, are back in the White House. Uh, you haven't opened the door for an awful lot of, uh, again, unintended consequences.
3: And that's exactly what will happen. Um, I'm on the record for a very forcefully... Uh, in opposition of the action of Harry Reid in 2013, I, I thought that uh, minimized the um, the institution. Likewise, I was very uh, in opposition of what uh, Senator McConnell did in 2017. Um, the Senate just is—it's um, it, been the in the of parliamentary action around the world, and um, these type of of actions to make changes in substantive long standing rules uh, they minimize the, uh, the the institutions so uh, i um, uh, obviously I do think that um, that it as Joe, um alluded there, eventually you can get through the the maze of uh the filibuster. It's different today than it was in sixty four. Um but still there um you even <laughs> I remember uh, uh, an anecdote uh, back in 2012, I guess, or 2013, 13, I guess, uh, when um, Ted Cruz was filibustering uh, the uh, uh, Obamacare. Well, the the Democrats are in majority uh and we go to our meetings every afternoon and there some of even uh, Ted's ardent supporters would stand up and say Ted i, I, I appreciate what you want to do but um the democrats are in majority how are you going to get 60 votes to uh, to do what you want to do, which is to um, reverse uh, uh, Obamacare, uh, we couldn't do it. So that shoe um, getting on the the other shoe um, w- will be for uh, the makeshift uh, makeshift of um, a lot of bad policy. and it'll be about a, a lot of shifting of uh policy just because all of a sudden you're gonna have fifty one versus sixty.
1: Tamar, that that uh, Cruz filibuster which ran I think twenty plus hours was he became notorious for that was the green eggs and ham
0: filibuster.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right?
0: Yes. Yes. Um, and Senator Chambliss is right. There, There is a ton of discussion about what the Senate would look like if the filibuster goes away. It's going to be head spinning. It'll be just like the House um, or just like what we see with these new presidents coming in with executive orders. Uh, you know, when whichever party's in the majority is going to push through everything they want at breakneck speed, they're going to you know, Republicans will repeal Obamacare and do all sorts of things on gun rights and immigration. And then the Democrats get in. They'll immediately try and reverse all of that. So, you know, the parties will get what they want. You'll you'll appeal to the bases. But I think um, there will be a ton of whiplash also um, in terms of just what people are trying to do and how quickly they'll be able to do it.
2: Bill, I yep. just wanted to ask Senator Chambliss, Senator, obviously you served, you know, post-1975, after the changes, you, know, you have the two tracks and you can uh, do these filibusters in different ways. Do you think it would make a difference if, if we went back to a talking filibuster to make folks have to stand up and talk to keep it going? Well, um,
3: the, the simple answer is no. Uh, just because, uh, times have changed and, um, the operation of the Senate now, um, a lot of it, a lot of which is, uh, driven by technology. Um, and to now think that we're going to go back to, um, um, the, the days of when, um, when you didn't have the capability of uh, Tamar indicated earlier, just send an email out um, and to do to do the stand up uh, all nights versus um, uh, the filibuster full of, uh, uh, versus the email. Um, it just not is it's not practically uh, operative today like it was back in the uh, pre eighties. So uh, uh, I, no, I I don't think so. We 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 just operate different today than what we did back then.
1: Uh Steve, I gotta get to a break. But uh there the, the talking filibuster has been one of the uh, uh items that has that some have said would be a good compromise on the filibuster. Just return it to the days when you had to hold the floor for twenty Hours plus if you wanted to block something. And there is still talk about that. And it's sort of Biden seemed to suggest that might be his preference. Yes.
4: Yeah. And even uh, Joe Manchin in a hallway interview talked about making it painful. So there is there are uh, talks right now about whether they can force uh, people to hold the floor in one of these upcoming bills, maybe on guns, maybe on something else, maybe on voting rights. That's the big one coming up is the voting legislation. There is zero chance the Republicans are going to allow that to pass, and the Democrats might want to make a show of having a bunch of all-nighters in a row and forcing late night votes and, and all the rest. Um, so that's something that, that you know is going to be a very sort of big test coming up is whether they will okay, force get- a talking filibuster.
1: I apologize, Steve. Um, We've got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be right back. I think it was last month that Tamar Hallerman suggested that we should talk about reconciliation on this show, Filibuster. And when she did, she said, you know who knows everything about reconciliation, especially this guy from Bloomberg News. Stephen Dennis. My former uh, so, colleague who
0: taught me everything right. I know about, the, <laughs> about reconciliation.
1: <laughs> so we've, we've got so little time uh, uh, left, and I want to give everybody a chance to weigh in on it, but, but just in the most basic way, Steve, uh, COVID-19 bill was passed on, by reconciliation. It needed a majority, not a supermajority of votes. Maybe infrastructure will be done the same way. Uh, reconciliation is is only uh, allowed for budget-oriented bills, right?
4: Yeah. So uh, there's a law uh, that that created reconciliation, which is a get-out-of-filibuster-free card. That's the way to think about it. You have this get, you, you have this limited get-out-of-filibuster-free card. And over the years, as the Senate has become more polarized, it's more tempting to pull that out and say, okay. I'm done talking to you folks. I want something to do. I want to pass my agenda. And uh, the the Republicans did that in 2017. They tried to use it to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And John McCain cast his thumbs down. They didn't have 51 votes. Then they passed a big tax cut with reconciliation. You can do enormous Mm -hmm. things with reconciliation. One of my favorite examples is you can set the Medicare age to zero. You could pass Medicare for all in reconciliation with one line saying the Medicare age is zero. Um, that would be seen as a, budget, as a budget issue. It would cost trillions of dollars, but you can do it. But you can't raise the minimum wage because that's not a government's expenditure of money, or at least not enough in the eyes of the parliamentarian. You have to do two things. You have to pass a budget resolution through the House and the Senate, the same one. doesn't go to the president's desk. You have to have an all-nighter of amendments on any possible thing that any senator can force. You could have dozens of votes, hundreds of votes. It can be an all-nighter. Then you have to have the bill, and you have to have committees come up with the pieces of the bill in both chambers. You have to resolve those differences. You have to come back to the floor. You can have up to three voteramas, they call them, overnight painful amendments on every possible thing this is really painful it's like getting a draft through a keyhole by the time you're done with it it's not going to look like you wanted it to but you can do big things so it's very tempting to make that keyhole larger and and to and to use it more often the democrats are talking about doing that
1: tomorrow you want to add something quickly
0: yeah, sure. It's just, as Steve said, such a tempting tool for Democrats. And there's so much that they can do, especially now that the parliamentarians said they can use it multiple times. Health care, they could raise taxes on the rich, they could raise the debt limit, they could lower the Medicare eligibility age, but there's plenty they can't do. Things like voting rights, things like guns, things like abortion, D.C. statehood. It's going to be very tempting for them to still want to get rid of the filibuster after all of this.
1: And, and and Senator Chambliss, um, it, it would also increase the already tense atmosphere between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, and I think you would call it an anti-democratic way and, and really a short-term way to get what you want because the next administration can just use it in the opposite direction.
3: Yeah, I think uh, McConnell has uh, uh, stated correctly that if you eliminate the filibuster, then it will be uh, a scorched uh, earth Senate. Um, some people would, uh, uh, would say say exists now uh, because of the, the extreme partisan attitude in, in on both sides in the uh, in the Senate now, but it would uh, it would increase.
1: Let me give Joe Crespino a chance to
2: weigh in before we end the show. Just taking a step back from our discussion today, and we're talking about the filibuster because we're talking about really an incredibly hyper-partisan America. And there are broad social technological changes that have contributed to where we are in a politics today. But I think it's incumbent upon us to think about ways that we can change our legislative way of doing things. Reconciliation is a terrible way to make laws for the American people, terrible way. And and there are changes that we can make. Um, some of them are new. Some of them may be old. You know, I think if we can make the American people uh, take off work and go stand in lines to vote, then we can make our senators stand up and, and speak and, and, um, and be responsible for their votes too. And I think that's what we should be I- doing.
1: Joe Crispino, ending the show on a positive, uh, hopeful note. Uh, thank you, Joe, for being with us. Stephen Dennis, what a pleasure to have you uh, join us. Senator Chambliss, thank you. Continue on your journey to be completely healthy again. And Tamar Hallerman, of course, it was great to be with you. This is one of those days when I think, how lucky am I to get to host a show with such smart people talking? We'll do it again tomorrow. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, You know you're supposed to wear your mask and put it over your nose. So many people don't. And finally, if you haven't gotten the shot yet, go out and get vaccinated. There's vaccine out there. See you all tomorrow.